boy, my sermon has been so preached for me this morning. The music, uh, that word that Laura had, um, it, it, yeah, grade six to eight. See you guys later. And, uh, but uh, my sermon is, is pretty much already preached, but I'm going to reiterate it because it's really important. We're in the series, the We Strive series, and we've been going through our mission statement. And I'll go stand where I'm supposed to stand so you can understand the mission statement because I took the T-shirt off early. It was here. So our mission statement, now you're missing two words. The only words uh, is 2C, okay? 2C, okay? So we strive to see, oh, I forgot, all people. I got messed up, messed up. Okay, we strive, it's in here, to see all people reconciled to God and mature in Christ. Okay, let's just do it one more time. We strive to see all people reconciled to God and mature in Christ. And that's Hillcrest Church mission statement uh, created by our board of elders. And we've had that for many years. And, and when I opened this series, I asked who knew it and nobody volunteered. And that was on me. If I haven't taught your mission statement well enough, then that's on me. And I'm hoping that by the end of this series that you'll all be pretty familiar with it. And many of you will be able to quote it like that. Today we're talking about the third piece. I started the series with We Strive, and Pastor Kurt did an amazing job last week with all people. And I'm going to talk about reconcile to God. And let me just read out of Philippians chapter 1 and verse uh, 27. It says, Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Now, this was written by a man named Paul, one of Jesus' earliest followers, and he's writing it to a church in the town of Philippi. But what if he wrote it to Hillcrest? What if he wrote it to our church in Moose Jaw? What if he wrote this and we were the ones receiving the letter and asking the questions? Well, are we? Are we conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? Are we? Are we striving together as one for the faith of the gospel? Are we striving to see, as our mission statement says, all people reconciled to God? I'll, I'll do the mature in Christ next week, so let's just stop there. Are we striving to see all people, all people reconciled to God? You might say, well, I'm not sure why this is so important. Like, why is this so important to people who have become followers of Jesus? Why is it so important that we strive, we work, we strategize, we put our best efforts towards seeing all people reconciled to God? Well, let me, let me, I'm going to go to the passage of Scripture that I think probably reiterates this phrase, reconciled to God, the most, and that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'm going to give you three reasons. There's so many more in here. I'm just going to pull three out. Uh, hopefully, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to stay on track with my time. So I'm going to try to pull three reasons out for why this matters so much to Christians. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 is where we begin. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done well in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. So I'm going to talk about... Um, three things that I think are motivating for Christians when it comes to 
uh, striving to see all people reconciled to God. The first one is the fear of the Lord. Now you say, well, the fear of the Lord, I don't know much about that. Uh, again, that would be on me. I should do more preaching on the fear of the Lord. It's really important to understand, actually. Um, you say, well, are we supposed to be afraid of God? Well, let's put it this way. Um, you should be afraid to defy God. That's the simplest way I can say it. You should be. You say, whoa, isn't God really nice? Well, he's also really just, right? And our sin and our defiance of God is not met by God with indifference. God really, really hates sin. And here's the other part. He really, really loves people. It's this really interesting combination. When the people of Israel were led out of Egypt, they come to the mountain, Mount Sinai, and there's this great, in fact, it was interesting, the, the scripture passage that Sharon read, I, like I said, my sermon's already been preached, but there's this great storm, thunder, smoke experience that they have at the mountain. So all these people who was a nation of slaves have been led out of Egypt, and now they're huddled in the, in the shadow of this mountain, and it is the scariest experience they've ever had. Well, maybe not, because they saw some plagues in Egypt that were pretty wild. But anyhow, this is pretty scary stuff. And they're desperately afraid. And they're saying, Moses, Moses, don't let God talk to us. Because they know what all of us know, that if you were to encounter a holy, pure God, that suddenly your unholy and impureness is exposed. They're like, Moses, please keep be a buffer between us and God. And Moses tells them an interesting thing. And it's my favorite verse on the... My favorite verse on the fear of God in the whole Bible, because it's so easy to remember, Exodus 20.20. If you want to see see things clearly, you need 20.20 vision. If you want to understand the fear of God, Exodus 20.20 is a really good one. And I'm just, I didn't get it in my notes, so I'll just basically try to quote it for you. Don't be afraid, is what Moses said. Don't be afraid. God is testing you. And the And the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. It's a really interesting verse. Because on one hand it says, don't be afraid. But then it says, the fear of God will be with you. So it's like, should I be afraid or not afraid? What's the deal here? And it's talking about two different types of fear. One is the fear of other things but God. Anything that's not God. He's saying, don't, whoa, should I switch? I should switch. Test, okay. So he's saying, don't be afraid of those things, but have a regard for the power and might and majesty of God. And that demonstration of lightning and smoke on the mountain was just a small taste of that. So they were like, whoa, that's really scary. We realize how how powerful God is. And he's saying, you know why you're getting this? Because down the road, you're going to be tempted to fear other things that you shouldn't be afraid of. Because you're going to fear something. You're going to fear something. If you're standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon and there's no guardrail, there's signs up showing people dying. They actually do have those at the Grand Canyon. I've been there. And let's say you hear this weird, creepy noise behind you and you turn around and it's a cockroach. Now, how many people are scared of cockroaches? That's good that you'd admit it. That's great. So, You should be. They're really creepy, right? So you turn around and you see this cockroach. Now, let's say in a panicky response, you jump. 
Now, let's say your friend is there and realizes that there you're about to do the panicky response. What would they say? They'd say, no, don't be afraid of the cockroach. Be afraid of the canyon. A moment like that happened years later for the Israelites. A moment like that happened for them. They were about to go into the promised land and they scouted it out first. And they saw that the, the, the people who were in that nation were very tall. In fact, they were so tall, they said, they're like giants to us. They're like giants to us. And they got afraid. And this is where God had been leading them on this journey to go into this land that he'd, he'd, he'd saved for them. And here it was. And they said, no, we're not going in. There was four leaders, two military leaders and two religious leaders in the nation of Israel at the time. Their response is very telling. The two military leaders who are uh, Joshua and Caleb, they had fought all of Israelites' battles on the way. Remember, this is a nation of slaves. Nobody's been trained for war, but they've been, they've been on a winning streak that you wouldn't believe. Nations would ride out with all of their armaments and their chariots, and they would somehow beat them. It didn't make any sense. It happened time and time again. What did the military leaders do? As soon as the nation of Israel said, no, we're not going in. We're not doing what God wants. We're not going in to uh, this land because the people there are tall and, and they'll, they'll, they're bigger than us. They started talking very sternly to the people. They said, no, 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 no. We never won any of those battles because we were the brilliant generals or you were the best fighters. We won those battles because of God. So don't be afraid of who opposes us. You should be afraid of God and defying him. Now, flip over to the religious leaders. What did they do? Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron didn't even bother talking to the people. They just fell on their faces before God. Well, these military guys are having a pep talk and saying, you are afraid of the wrong thing. You do not, you are looking at the cockroaches when you should be worried about the canyon. Over here, Moses and Aaron fall on their faces before God and they say, God, please, please, don't destroy them. Please have mercy. They realize that this is all out rebellion against God. And the leaders recognize this is not safe. Now, we often sort of like to tame God down. But, you know, if you read the Bible, you sort of have to temper that desire. Because you realize, you realize how serious our sin against him really is. You realize how, how serious it really is. Now, I was, one more thing about the fear of God, and then I'll move on. Um, when I was growing up, I had a great big fear of dogs. We didn't have a dog in our house growing up, and I had a paper route. And my paper route meant I went to houses where there were big dogs. And I, hadn't, I had no experience with big dogs. Just that they would put their paws up on my chest and be bigger than me, and I'm just trying to collect, you know, and, and deliver my paper. And I would freak out. I didn't know what to do. So what did I do? I would recoil. And the homeowners would tell me helpful things like, my dog can smell your fear, you know, stuff like that, you know? <laughs> Which would make me more afraid. 
right? But the most helpful thing, advice I got was one homeowner who said, don't back away from the dog, move towards the dog. You can scratch behind its ears. It's really, it, even though it's got big teeth, it's actually a friendly dog. And it, you can be friends with it. It'll get to know you. It'll get, it just wants to smell you right now. And so I learned that, and I became less afraid because of that. I realized, don't back away. Don't run. Actually, move in closer. Give him a good little rub on the head, and he'll be your friend. He'll be happy to see you. You might get licked every time, and it's gross, but still, you will live. The same is, now it's a really bad analogy, but there's, when you approach God, you say, oh, God, in his power and his might and his majesty, I want to run. But the safest place is to draw near to God, to come close. Now, it's a totally different analogy. We're not talking about a dog. We're talking about the creator of the universe. But when we come close to him, when we align with him, when we obey him, we're safe. We don't live a life of terror. In fact, the fear of God becomes a good thing. Let me talk about the other and the second dynamic. It says in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5, for Christ's love compels us. So first thing is we know about the fear of the Lord. And that harkens back to the verses before it, which says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We know that the judgment of God for our sin is severe. That the wrath of God against sin is severe. So the fear of the Lord is a real dynamic. But on the flip side, there's the love of God. It's not the flip side, it's part of the package. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. So let me just unpack that. He says, so what are we supposed to do? Fear God or love God? Both. That's not schizophrenic. That doesn't disagree with it. I want you to think about your parents. Now, this might not work for you, depending on how your upbringing was. But it might. It might just, it might. Maybe you have to think of a teacher or someone else in your life. So have you had a parent or a teacher or a coach or somebody in your life that you simultaneously respected and loved. That you had a high regard for their standards, their rules, their laws, the things that they set out for you, and at the same time, there was real and genuine love in that relationship. I was a school bus driver, and I was really bad at it. Because the year I was a school bus driver, I was like 21 or 22, I don't know. I was just like right out of college, and I needed, some, I needed a sideline because uh, the gig I was doing, being a youth pastor, was didn't pay very much. Anyhow, so I was a school bus driver, but I made a huge mistake. I was trying to befriend all the kids on the bus because they were like my age practically. Some of them looked older than me. They had better facial hair than I had. And so I thought, yeah, I'm just going to be the cool bus driver, right? Not like those old guys in the bus school bus division. I'm going to be the cool bus driver. Well, a couple months in, it was going terribly. They didn't respect me at all. So I phoned my mom, who's like, the, you know, she's been a, what, I think in the 1950s she started school teaching and she's still teaching today. And I phoned her, she's like the world's lo- longest serving school teacher. I phoned her and I said, hey, I can't get these kids to re- respect me, but I'm pretty sure kids respect you. What am I doing wrong? She said, did you smile before Thanksgiving? <laughs> smile? I'm high-fiving these kids when they get on. I'm like the cool bus driver. He, and she's like, oh, that was your mistake. She says, 
the first couple months as a teacher are about establishing order in the classroom. Now, I think you can smile before Thanksgiving. I'm not saying this is the cardinal rule. But the first couple months, you establish order in the classroom. And once you've got sort of how things work and things are working that way, you'll find that it naturally happens that you usually can become decent friends with kids as well. But if you do it the other way, if your first goal is to become friends with the kids, they won't necessarily respect you, and you'll have chaos by the end of the year, which is what I had on my bus route. So with God, it's possible to love God and fear God at the same time. That fear is not a terror when you're aligned with God. See, you come to recognize things, and that's the third one. You're convinced that one died for all. The fact that Jesus died for all, it demonstrates that our sin is more serious than we know. You say, I don't know if sin's a big deal. God sends his son to die for that very sin. It must have been a big deal. It must have been a way bigger deal than we recognized, than we could possibly recognize. Secondly, the fact that God sent his son to die for our sin shows that God's love is greater than we realize. So both of these dynamics are greater than we understand. Our sin is more of a problem. It's more abhorrent to God. Our rebellion our disobedience, our unwillingness to be under his authority is more of a problem. And his love for us is way bigger than any other love we've experienced in our lives. It's way pure. Well, it is pure. It's not mingled with mixed motivations. It's incredible. It's, it's the pure stuff. It's the real stuff. The thing that you were made for that your heart desires, that you wonder if it even is possible. You've tasted conditional love everywhere. Here comes God loving us before we do a single thing for him. Wow. And so we've got both in one. We've got both in one. Christ's love compels us. We also know what it is to fear the Lord. So this is, this is where the Christian should be. If you say, well, I'm not there on one of those two things, then I challenge you. Whether it's to go deeper in the love of God or go deeper in your understanding of the fear of the Lord and, and having a regard for his holiness and his majesty. But then it goes on from there. For Christ's love compels us because we're, we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So this fear of the Lord, Christ's love which compels us, and being convinced that Christ has died for everybody, including us, changes how we live. Not, we don't live for ourselves anymore, but we live for him. So for, and here's how it also changes our view of other people. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. I had a call uh, a couple years ago. I happened to be at the front desk here in the office, and someone phoned and they wanted to talk to the pastor. So I got on the phone, and this guy's like, yeah, I'm just phoning today um, to see if you would convince me that God exists, or something along those lines. And right away, I was suspicious. I thought, I think someone's looking for an argument. And I was right. Um, so as I started to say, okay, well, I'll tell you some of the reasons why I believe God exists. Then they were jumped right back in and they said, aha, now I'm going to tell you why you're wrong and all these things. And I thought, oh, great. Thanks for phoning. 
Um, so I thought it was probably some organization had punk the pastor week, you know, and they got all their guys to phone or something. I don't know what it was. But anyway, I was just this weird young guy phoning and wanting to, uh, you know, say his piece about how he didn't believe in God. So he went on for a while, and then his cell phone died. So that was the end of the conversation. Now, how do I know his cell phone died? Because he phoned back later, and he was like, oh, my cell phone died. I want to continue that conversation, which was very one-sided. Anyhow, I was like, on to other things, and we never ever did pick up the conversation again. Now, later on, I got thinking about it, and I thought, well, now, he asked me to sort of jump in and sort of do apologetics or, you know, explain my faith on my end, and I wish I'd actually taken a different tack. You know, I always get I always get it right the second time around. Don't you have that experience? The first time around, you're like, no, I blew that. I could have done better. This is what I wish I'd done. This is what I wish I'd done. Of course, I'd never had anyone try to punk the pastor before, so it was a new experience. But anyhow, I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd listened to his objections. It would have taken a while. And then I wish I would have asked him a second question, like asked for more feedback from him. And that is, I would have asked him, I'm a Christian pastor who leads a Christian church. How do you see me? That's what I wish I would have asked him. How do you see me? And then I would have had to sort of grit my teeth because I bet it would have been a bad, you know, a not so nice answer. But I would have I would have just had to listen to that, you know. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, I see. Oh, hmm. Thank you. Well, that's interesting. And then when he's done, I, I would venture to say, do you want to know how I see you? And maybe he'd be open to listening. I don't know if he would. But if he would, I'd love to tell him. Say, you know what? I think you were created in the image of God. And that God's put his fingerprints all over you. And that he loves you so dearly that he would give up his only son so that you could have a relationship with him. He wants to be in the relationship with you so bad That even if 99 people were following him and you were the one and only that wasn't following him, he would go out and pursue you to have have a relationship with you. You matter that much to God. That's how I see you. I don't think you're just a body that is is a, a biological accident that's here to decay and die. I believe that you have an eternal soul and that you're an eternal being and you will live forever. And that's why you matter a whole bunch to me. Because you're going to live forever. Because that's how God created you. That's how I see you. What do you think of that? From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. What would be a worldly point of view? This guy's a jerk. So he doesn't matter. But a godly point of view would be like, this is an eternal soul. This is someone God created and died for. Listen to the heart of God. I was reading this in our prayer week. We had it as our, in, uh, we were doing prayer for government this week. So 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 6. Just, I love the heart of God in this. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings. And all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We were in a group, and a few of us started to share and saying, some days it's hard to pray for the people who are in political authority over you. And um, someone brought up the prime minister and uh, then said 
I thought something quite profound. Uh, so this is someone who is older than the prime minister. I'm the same age. We're three months apart. But anyhow, um, so they said, I had this, um, someone had shared it with them. I had this idea that I should pray for the prime minister like I would for my own son. And this was not necessarily a person who I was sort of gathering that they probably weren't going to vote for the prime minister, but they probably would pray for the prime minister. And I thought that was pretty cool because that's when it's hard. If you're already pumped about the people who are in political power over you, it's easy to pray for them, right? Oh, God, bless them in all the good things they're doing because they believe exactly like me. Thank you, Lord. But if they don't and you pray for them, that God will bless them, that's pretty profound. That's pretty significant. Now, in that same prayer time, I had a thought about the prime minister. Nothing about the prime minister, but it's just weird. I, that came up too. And I thought, thanksgiving. I, God wants us to thank him for everybody. Well, I'm pretty sure God must not be pleased with certain people who are leading in certain ways. I'm not talking about the prime minister, but I'm just saying in general. So I had this thought come to my mind in listening prayer, and that was like, God reminded me how I tend to pray for people when they ask for prayer. So if you've ever had me pray for you, most times I will start my prayer by saying, if your name's Bob, thank you, Lord, for Bob. Now, I don't know if I do that because it says that in the scripture to do that or because maybe my mom or dad did it and I just picked it up from them or maybe I heard others do it. I don't know why, but I pretty much do that almost every time. Thank you for Bob. So I imagined in my mind that the prime minister had come to see me and said, Steve, would you pray for me? And I, which probably will never happen in my life, but I just say that. And so I, in my mind, thought, what would I say? I would say, thank you, Lord, for, well, in this case, if we're being very personal, name to name, I'd say, thank you, Lord, for Justin. And Lord, I pray you'd work in his life, bless him, all these things. Isn't God loving? I urge you then, okay, we'll get past that. So that is good. This is good. That's what the scripture says. Verse 3. And pleases God our Savior. When you pray for those in authority, it pleases God. And that includes all authority. And all people. We even have a t-shirt to show that. This is good. It pleases God our Savior. Who wants all people to be saved? And to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and mankind. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And this has now been witnessed to at the proper time. God's love for all people is enormous. It's unbelievable. He wants them all to be saved. He wants them to come to a knowledge of the truth. In fact, so much so that God the Father's uh, plan was to send Christ Jesus to give himself as a ransom for all people. So the fear of the Lord compels us. The love of Christ compels us. We're convinced that one died for all. And then it goes on in first, Second Corinthians 5. It says, Though we want, uh, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So that means we're partners with him in his work. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Wow, that's amazing. So no matter how much you've defied God, 
it's possible for that defiance and rebellion to be forgiven. When you come humbly to God and you say, I'm sorry, I've lived my own, I've gone my own way, I didn't go your way, I didn't recognize your authority, I defied your authority. I didn't recognize you have a call in my life. I ignored that call and I ran the opposite direction. Please forgive me. The Bible says he's faithful and just and he forgives us those sins. No matter what we've done, no matter how abhorrent, how wrong, and how defiant, he'll forgive. So God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins again. Can you imagine that? The slate is wiped clean after that. He's not counting your sins against you, against the follower of Jesus, right? As the one who's come to him. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. So we have the job, but we also have the message. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So he, because of what, God did, it changed who we are. There's a lot of things about what the Bible says we are. One of our strongest identities is we are Christ's ambassadors. We're his representatives in the world. Well, that should change how you walk into a room full of strangers. I am Christ's ambassador in this world. Not the only one. There's lots of them. About a billion maybe, give or take. But I'm meant to represent him. I'm meant to look like him. I'm meant to uh, speak a message of reconciliation. Uh, reconciliation. Be about this reconciliation. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us about how much of a priority this is and can be in our lives. It's the Apostle Paul talking about it. 1 Corinthians 10, 23. I have the right to do anything, you say. This is what people have argued. They say, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Now, let's get the rest of it. We'll jump farther down into 1 Corinthians 10, 31 to 33. So hang on to that. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Well, that seems rather selfless, but let's keep going. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. Now, Paul in another point says he's not just living to please people. So that's just to clarify that. He is living to please God. But in some way, he is trying to please people for a reason. And that's this reason. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. So what would it look like if you reshaped how you live your life to reflect this reality, you reshaped your life. You said, well, in this way, I'm really just living to please myself. But I see how it's not conducive to other people coming into relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, it might be a stumbling block stopping them from coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I don't want to do that. So if I'm going to follow the example of Apostle Paul, who I believe was following the example of Jesus who is all about seeking the one that was lost, then I'm going to change. Even if I can say, man, I have the right to do that. I'm not going to do that. Paul said another point, I'm going to be all things to all people so that I might save some. 
year and a half ago, we were teaching through Titus, and a verse just grabbed onto me. It's Titus 3.7. It basically says, we are heirs having the hope of eternal life. That verse struck me. We are heirs. That's, a, that's about an inheritance. You're an heir. You're getting something. In this case, from God. I am an heir as a follower of Jesus, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you are also an heir of the hope of eternal life. And that pretty much means no one can ever make you poor. You're going to be eternally rich. You already are. I already am. You can't make me poor. You can sue me. You can rob from me. You can make me bankrupt in this world, but I am an heir of eternal life. So now that that's dealt with, that I'm eternally rich, maybe I should care about the good of others. My good is already taken care of. It's done. It's sealed. It's mine. So I've already got everything. I'm the heir of everything in Christ. So I can be radically others-focused. I'm not saying that I am. I'm challenged by this verse. I hope you are too. But my good is secured. But what about the others? Do they have what I have? Are they heirs of the hope of eternal life? The more I realize what God has done for me, the more I value it, the more I treasure it, the more it becomes real in my life that my sin was so great and God's grace was that much greater. That what he's done for me is of greater benefit than anything that can be done for me. The more I get a hold of that, the more gratitude I'm going to see in my life. It's actually happening. I've experienced that in the last few years. More gratitude, more thankfulness in my heart because I realized the game change of the gospel. Well, I'm realizing it. I won't say I realized it because there's depths and depths and depths of it. But the deeper it goes, the happier I am, the more grateful I am. But also the more others-focused I can be. My greatest need is met. Now, since that's met, what can I do to help other people's greatest need? Let me share one last verse. Kurt, do you want to bring out? Kurt's going to bring a verse out that I want to share with you really quickly. Just watching our time. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to respond to something I've been sharing. It might be more than a moment because Kurt has a tricky drive to get in here. This is going to be quite an accomplishment if he can make it. So you might have seen this verse before. You guys tell me where it's found? John 3.16. You must watch a lot of baseball games. Okay. (laughs) That's where you see it in the stands, you know. Okay. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So there's there's several parts to this. several parts to this. Start with the first one. It says, shall not perish. Also, shall not get this lid off. There we go. Childproof. Shall not perish. So start there. That's the danger. 
That's the danger highlighted in this verse. We talk about the fear of God, that you should be terrified to oppose God. And James, James says God gives grace to the humble. But what does he say about the proud? He opposes the proud. As an Israelite, you wouldn't have wanted to walk up that mountain and say, no, God, I defy you. Lightning, smoke, doesn't matter. That wouldn't be a wise course of action. This is Jesus talking. Jesus is spelling out that there is a danger. Perish. That's the danger. That without God... perish like the saying either sin will separate you from God or God will separate you from your sin but only one can be your master you're either going to live your whole life for yourself and selfish pursuits or you're going to live for Jesus but the result of living for self and rejecting God's call in your life is what Jesus described, perishing, separated from God. It's pretty serious stuff. The second thing we have in there is the good side of the story, and that's eternal life. He said that God's not willing, God's not desiring for any to perish, but he's got a destiny in mind. For all people, and that's eternal life with Him. And some people say, "Well, I don't know. I've seen some, you know, TV shows about heaven. They don't look that exciting." Uh, the reality is, it's not about playing harps and Philly cheese. It is about being with God. An un um, what's the right word? An untappable resource of joy and fulfillment. Right? All the hymn writers would say there, if when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we, when we just begun. What's the deal there? You, after 10,000 years, will go, we haven't touched. We have not even touched the depth of who God is and all that he has for us. Uh, I think that everything you experience on earth that's actually good, magnify it. Magnify it. But on top of that, magnify your experience of God. Right now, we see through a, a glass darkly. Our relationship with Him is not fully complete. He says, then we'll see face to face. Eternal life is amazing. Amazing. And what a contrast from perishing to eternal life. Now, this is all God's, oops, this is all God's design. says, God so loved the world. How much did he love the world? That he gave his only son. That he gave his only son. I was trying to get my head around that. And I've got three sons, so I don't have an only son. But I thought if I took my five-year-old, and uh, I was trying to do this, you know, sometimes you do these mental, you might not like this illustration, but I'll just share it real quickly. What if... All of mankind wanted my son dead. 
but it was the only way that their sins could be atoned for. Sort of a grisly thought in many ways. The fact that Jesus is even called the Son talks about the love of a father and a son. This talks about deep, deep love. Love existed on an incredibly deep level that we can't even imagine before even the creation of humans. It wasn't that God created you so he had someone to love. Love already existed in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, the crazy thing is when Jesus and John is, or John is recording how Jesus says that the Father's love for the Son, which all the disciples can see on display, I mean, they heard his words at the baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. They're aching in their hearts for what Jesus has with the Father. And then Jesus says these amazing words that the Father loves you like he loves me. (laughs) John 15, 16, 17. Just read those. It's amazing. So his design out of his love, out of his love for every all people, that's what it means by the world, is he... This great action happens. And then it just leaves us with one last thing, and that's our duty. (laughs) Our response. That whoever believes in him. So believe, that's a big word. It really encompasses trusting God with your life. To just lay it all down. Before him. Say, I'm not living for me anymore. I'm living for you. Just like the Bible says. That transformation is meant to happen. I'm living for you. So there's a danger that many will perish. There's a destiny. God's calling them to eternal life. There's the design, the plan that the Father uh, created, that the Son embraced. And then there's the response of the human heart that believes this truth, latches onto it for themselves, And realize that that good shepherd left the 99 to come find me. Now what are we going to do about it? I want to challenge you here at the end. Maybe the worship team could just come back. There's a whole bunch of rocks here. They're sharp. They're dusty. The Bible says that God is creating a house out of living stones. The cornerstone is Jesus, but the rest of the stones are yet to be determined. And in my mind, I think of people I know and love who aren't followers of Jesus yet. And I think, I'm an heir heir of eternal life. I already have that hope. That's secured for me. I really don't need anything else. I'm on the back nine of my life. I'm past 40. So I'm on the back nine in my life going for the clubhouse. Why am I still playing? Because I think there's some other people who should be in the clubhouse with me. And I want them to be heirs of the hope of eternal life as well. So what I'm going to challenge you to do is you, as you think, I want you to ask God, just listen in prayer. God, who is it that you would put on my heart to pray for, to reach out to, to care for, Remember, we are freed up to care for others more because of what Christ has done for us. Who are those people? And then I want you to come and take a number of rocks representing those people. Maybe it's two people, three people. I don't know. But come and take a number of rocks 
And we're going to invite prayer teams to come here. And what I want you to do is take those rocks, come to a prayer team, and pray with people. Right? If you're going to see people go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, it's going to take prayer. It's going to take a work of the Spirit of God. We don't have a one, two, three plan that works every time. It takes a miracle for a person to become a new creature in Christ. So I want, I want you to add, make an act of faith. Think about it. Grab the number of rocks you need to take. Bring it to, our prayer teams are going to be up front. Bring it to them and pray together. Agree together for those people that you indicate, whether you say names or you just say my neighbor or my friend or my coworker, whatever it is. But we want to strive together for all people to see them reconciled to God. Would you stand? Lord, we are listening to your prompting right now. We don't want to just make a list of every person we know who isn't a Christian. We want to listen. Are there some divine appointments that you have for us? Is there some way that you're nudging us? It's okay to speak to everyone we know who's not a Christian about you. That's okay. But Lord, is there some, maybe you've got a priority sequence, or maybe you, obviously, you already know hearts that are warming towards you or seeking or looking or, or there's an emptiness there that can only be filled by you. So, Lord, we're going to listen. Let's just take this moment and, and see if the Lord will put some people on your heart and your mind. All right, prayer teams, just come. And as soon as the prayer teams get here, if you know who God's putting on your heart and your mind, you come. Take those rocks. And I want you to bring them to the prayer team. When you're done with the prayer team, you can start lining them up across the front to represent a faith step as a church and saying, yes, we are striving together. It might be totally different people we're praying for and believing for, but we're actually stepping out in faith together to believe that God will not only answer prayers, um, but for people that we know and love and that God knows and loves even more than we know and love. So let's, worship team, would you just play something and let's just take this time to pray together.